0: Sermon on the Mount, we're in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 5, looking at the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Yes, in light of the election, Jesus ascended this mount, and and it's... Uh, I think it's a visual illustration that accompanies the sermon that he delivered. I mean, he could have delivered this sermon anywhere. He didn't always ascend a mount to deliver his messages. And so there he is seated on the top of the mount. And the words he spoke and the way he lived them out were sort of the summit of Christian living, what we can uh, uh, ascribe to. And it's letting us know that we too must make this ascent but we can't on our own even begin to climb because the very first thing he said was that you must be poor in spirit and the words as you recall from last week mean that you're a spiritual beggar uh... it's the strongest word for poverty he could have chosen so we have no spiritual asset whatsoever by which we can begin to make that climb to righteousness and holiness uh... and yet in that realization in that moment of realization is the hope that we can cry out to God and that he will save us by grace through faith. And many of us can remember that moment in our life if we were saved, especially later in life when you saw the hopelessness of your condition as a spiritual beggar and yet knew at the same time that the Lord was there to save you. And it's a little bit of that crying out that is next described when Jesus says, uh, blessed are those who mourn, or as we know it means, oh, how happy and to be envied are those who mourn. Again, this word used for mourn is the strongest choice possible. It's the word that would be used if you were mourning for the dead. In fact, you could translate this phrase, blessed is the man who mourns like one who is mourning for the dead. And so cause me to ask, who's dead or who has died? Who are we mourning for? And I'm going to suggest that it's you and I who we're mourning for, we're the the ones who are dead in this sense. The Apostle Paul, I'm going to refer to him a lot this morning, he's a great resource on this subject for uh, many reasons. Uh, First of all, a little bit of a a story. As near as I can tell, this is a a true illustration. Uh, I have found some actual references to this, although I'm always careful with Bible illustrations that sound a little bit too perfect. And some of you may have heard this before, and if you do some research on the internet today and find out that it's not true, let me know. But Bible commentators for years have been saying that near Tarshish, uh, where the Apostle Paul was born, there were a tribe of people who lived at one time who inflicted a certain penalty upon murderers. And the penalty was they would fasten the body of the victim to that of the killer, tying it shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm, back to back and such, uh, and then drive the murderer from the community. And that over time, uh, of course, he couldn't get, you know, he was bound in such a way that he couldn't get free from the decaying body, and so the this they would call it the body of death. Now this fits in perfectly with what Paul says in Romans 7, which is uh, gives me some indication that it, you know, we hopefully it's it's true it's kind of a cool illustration you know even if it's not didn't actually happen it'd be a great way to illustrate what he's saying in Romans 7 because he says oh wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death and uh, Paul as a Christian saw himself carrying around within him a body of death he described it internally in different ways in Romans 7 he said he was carnal he said that sin dwells in me he said that evil is present with me, and he called it the flesh. And so all of those are talking about this same idea from various different angles. He said, I have a body of death within me. I'm carnal, which means fleshly. Uh, it's sin that dwells in me. It's evil that is present with me. It's the flesh. And so this body of death is the flesh that continues to exist within you after you get saved. As a result, a great struggle begins uh, a spiritual conflict the war within it's been called and you read about it in Galatians five seventeen, where it says the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that you do not n- do the things that you wish and so it, biblically I think the dead man you mourn for is you because you and I are born dead in trespasses and sins uh, with no hope of heaven uh, you know just with this body of death decaying. Paul also made much of uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit when he goes on in chapter 8 of Romans. He says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And then he said, His Spirit dwells in you. And so, uh, you're a person that's born dead in trespasses and sins. Everybody is born into this condition, spiritually dead, uh, a sinner. The Bible says that we inherit sin from Adam and Eve in a spiritual sense; sin is imputed to you. This is more of a a transaction that takes place in heaven if you had if you know you don 't start off as a blank slate like John Locke, the philosopher, said you start off with imputed sin, and then we commit actual sins uh, as we uh, grow, even though she 's obviously not to the age of accountability. It was interesting we we were watching our granddaughter the other day c j And um, we don't have a huge living room, but we had the living room all set up with toys and different diversions for her. And the only thing she wanted to do over and over again was crawl into the kitchen and play with the dog's water, which we kept telling her she couldn't do. And so we'd put her down in the midst of all these beautiful toys, which reminded me of all the trees in the Garden of Eden that <laughs> that Eve could have eaten from, and then she'd immediately get her bearings and start crawling to the dog's water again, over and over and over again. And so, uh, you know, and it was Pam who said, hey, it's the Garden of Eden, we're, we're reliving it right now, you know, you, you can have all this stuff, but instead you want to go for the thing that you can't have, and so... Uh, also, in Chapter eight of Romans, Paul says, "Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. This idea of groaning or mourning within is a common thread in paul 's writings in second Corinthians five, which is a passage we use a lot at funerals uh, because it talks about uh, you know to being absent from the body and present with the Lord." he said that we who are in this tabernacle or this tent, referring to the physical body, he says we groan being burdened. And I don't think, I really don't think he's just talking about arthritis or the aches and pains of life or, you know, my bad ankle that needs some time to get going in the morning. I mean, that, that's certainly a, a problem. He's really talking about sin and something spiritual that that burdens us. And then he goes on in that same chapter and describes himself as earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with his house which is from heaven. So he wants to exchange our current physical body with all of its physical limitations but its spiritual baggage for our glorified body which is going to be free from all of those things. And so this groaning within... And this earnest desire to be free from the flesh is our spiritual mourning. It's the bemoaning of our condition now that we are born again and encounter this internal struggle, struggle. Excuse me. And so Jesus, if we return to Jesus now from Paul, and we think of him in all these beatitudes, we want to see Jesus as the example or the model because he is the epitome of what it means to be a human being. We, we talk about this from time to time, how that though he was fully God, he... Uh, voluntarily set aside the, you know, his prerogative to use his divine attributes and said, I'm just going to live as a man. A man just like every other man filled with the Holy Spirit in submission to my Father. And so he is the embodiment of these words. Uh, so how did he mourn? Well, certainly not for any struggle within himself, since he had no sin nature. Uh, it, Jesus born of a virgin didn't have the the sin nature that that we are born with by the way i don't want to get into it because it's it's unresolvable and people have strong opinions on it Uh, but theologians have argued for centuries whether jesus could have sinned or not Uh, it's called just i'm sure you'll run into this today you know at the water cooler so it's called the uh, peccability or the impeccability of christ don't you love that that's that's what that's what kind of thing zach needs to go to school for is to to know what these words mean so in other words was jesus impeccable or could he have been peccable (laughs) which i didn't even know was a word but uh and so there's a debate could he he didn't sin everybody's clear that jesus didn't ever sin but some people say he could have otherwise it doesn't make his temptation real others say he couldn't have and it made his temptation all the worse and so it's a it's, it's over here in theological journals in case you want to read about that and waste your time. Uh, but uh, he certainly had no sin nature and wasn't mourning for his own uh, condition. But you see, for example, him mourning at the condition of Jerusalem. There as he came into Jerusalem for the final time and he wept over Jerusalem and he indicated that he would have gathered her children as a mother hen gathers her hens and protected them and kept them, but they willfully rejected him. Uh, and, and Jesus, probably more than any other human being, mourned for the human condition uh, that you know the, the fact of our indwelling sin, our sin nature, our rejection of God, and, and then the fact that the answer he was that answer, he is that answer. He is the way, the truth, and the light, and, and yet in the life, and, and yet people reject him, and so he had this this understanding of mourning. If you mourn for the body of your sin, and that of others even, it says here in our verse, you shall be comforted. And so what is the comfort? Well, it seems that it's the understanding that you are now indwelt by God himself, by God the Holy Spirit. And that makes sense because it's not a coincidence that the word used for comforted is the same Greek word that would be rendered comforter and is so used in John 14 when Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to leave them and go to heaven he says I've been your comforter and I will send you another comforter Uh, and though they were sad obviously and didn't well of course they were more sad because they didn't understand the the real breath of Jesus words Uh, there's a sense in which it's better that Jesus is gone and well obviously you know the resurrection the ascension that part but now he's able to send the Holy Spirit to live and dwell inside every believer to be our comforter And so this very struggle within, this wretchedness that we identify, this conflict is only really possible if you're a new creation in Christ with the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin because now He's present within you uh, revealing this and His presence can bring you comfort. So there might be people in the world who... You know, they're, they don't think they're as good as they can be or they struggle, you know, because they do wrong things. They have, I mean, there are people who have a moral compass. Not everyone is totally immoral or amoral. There, there is a, a worldly morality. Uh, and, and certain re- religions and philosophies really promote a very strong uh, morality. But you, you can't have this kind of struggle that we're talking about until you uh, really become a Christian when you understand that you're a hell-doomed